0: Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today we are speaking to Kenya's former Chief Justice, Dr. Willy Mutunga, who served on the Kenyan Supreme Court from 2011 to 2016. He's here today to discuss the recent court decision to strike down Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta's major push for a constitutional referendum and what this means for the country's elections. He also reflects on lessons from his lifelong efforts as a civil society campaigner. Chief Justice, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Now, we've asked you to come on and reflect on the major ruling from Kenya's high court. Uh, First, I want to quickly go over some of the politics for our listeners, because for those who have not been paying close attention... Uh, This one is a bit complicated. So in 2018, President Uhuru Kenyatta and his main election challenger, longtime opposition leader Rai Lodinga, they agreed to the so-called handshake deal to end the country's latest post-election crisis. Um, As part of that deal, the two announced the Building Bridges Initiative, usually in Kenya this is shorthanded as BBI. This evolved into a proposed referendum for a set of proposed constitutional amendments that include the creation of prime minister and allocating more money to local government. Governments, They claim, of course, that this will increase power sharing in the country. But many Kenyans see this whole BBI exercise as a means for President Kenyatta to try and tip the scales ahead of next year's elections in favor of his chosen successor and at the expense of President Kenyatta's running mate and deputy president, William Ruto, whose allies are deeply critical of the BBI process. Tensions between President Kenyatta and his deputy president, Ruto, have been uh, rising and stark throughout the past few years. The civil society, Kenyan civil society, has also seen these amendments as an attempt by the political elite to undermine Kenya's 2010 constitution and have been Also deeply critical of this entire process because that 2010 constitution is still seen as one of the more progressive on the continent. So this high court ruling that the whole process, this whole BBI process uh, violated the constitution, it was widely welcomed, uh, especially by civil society. But it has, of course, stirred a furious reaction from government supporters Uh, as it really upended the politics uh, leading up to these elections. The Attorney General has appealed the case, so it could reach the Supreme Court. But there are a lot of doubts now about whether the government still has the time to proceed with the constitutional referendum as planned ahead of the elections. So, Chief Justice, help us uh, unpack all of this. Why is this decision so significant?
1: This decision is is very important because of its fidelity to the 2010 constitution. And you you have to realize that the elite in Kenya finds this constitution very progressive. And since its promulgation, we have seen struggles to claw back the fundamental pillars of of this particular constitution. that's why it's, it's landmark, because uh, it has uh, preserved uh, the progressiveness of this constitution. This decision emphasizes the sovereignty of the Kenyan people. And, and, and that's a hallmark of, of, of dem- democracy, OK? That's, that's why this decision is, uh, is landmark. And it's been praised by constitutional law academics, you know, from various parts of the world.
0: You've had two major uh, decisions recently against President Kenyatta's interests. You know, for the first major one that outsiders will know was the uh, annulling of the presidential election in 2017. And now you have the high court ruling against basically what the president wanted in this BBI ruling, which was his major political initiative. And all of that is is quite extraordinary. I mean, especially within this Broader region, so I'm wondering if you have any reflections on exactly how did how did Kenya get here uh, with such a uniquely assertive and independent judiciary? Obviously, it was quite a process, and you were you were central to much of it.
1: The judiciary is not yet independent. In fact, there there are many 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 cases actually uh, before BBI where the the president has subverted the constitution by not complying with court orders. But the, the, the judiciary can't be judged by those few cases. There is a, a quest for this independence. And what my assessment is that the high court is in the forefront of this struggle. OK, sometimes the court of appeal has become a graveyard of uh, progressive jurisprudence. And the Supreme Court sees, seems to see so, even when uh, I was on the Supreme Court, so the cases are many, uh, and not just the the nullifying of the presidential election in 2017. Uh, there have been many, many uh, others in the in the High Court, particularly where uh, legislation from the from Parliament, parliament has been struck down, uh, even legislation that the President had sent to the that vision, that vision of, of independence of the judiciary is something that the judiciary has faced since the promulgation. What I can say is that the judiciary is at, at a crossroads. part of the judiciary that wants to be the appendage of the executive and other influences and forces that undermine judicial independence, but there are others who want to emphasize fidelity to the constitution, breathe life to the constitution, uh, because it's a it's a progressive constitution, and that struggles to you know uh, uh, continues. It's just that in Kenya, it's only political cases that seem to you know attract attention, uh, particularly where a courts rule against the executive or parliament, but there. The courts have ruled against uh, organizations, corporations, uh, civil society groups, and there has been a, a robust public interest litigation in this country since the promulgation of the constitution. Citizens go to court to challenge different types of actions, uh, and and that is that is of course a, a very 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 important uh, um, you know attribute to. That development, And then we have also uh, the Judiciary Training Institute. That, that has also helped a lot, uh, because it's kind of an institution of higher learning uh, in the judiciary, and judges go there, and they reflect, you know, uh, it's the same place where dialogues between the three arms take place, and uh, that has been uh, you know, very, very very, very useful. You know, independence of the judiciary is a contested terrain. But what I see is maybe the institution itself is is getting united in terms of its role. You know, uh, you know, uh, to the people. But we will, we'll have to wait and see.
0: Can I just ask you? I mean. What's it like for justices to stand up to the executive and even to the the president himself on a matter of that's so politically weighty? Um, The the, the pressure must be enormous.
1: Yeah, it is because uh, uh, the judges get attacked. 2017, when the Supreme Court uh, nullified the presidential election, uh, the president, the deputy, and others attacked the four judges who uh, ruled that the election was not conducted under the uh, constitutional principles and therefore nullified it. It's a lot of pressure, but the judiciary also gets a lot of support from people. I mean, like this decision on BBI is supported by Kenyans. Helen, you have to realize that Kenyan politics is what I call politics of division. So whenever the judiciary makes a decision, it might be celebrated by some people because they see it as a a victory, like the BBI, for example, a victory for the deputy president. So the divisions, the intra-elite divisions are the ones that create all these uh, problems because the divisions, ethnic, religious, race, gender, generation, region, clan, there are too many, you know, divisions, and the people see these uh, findings of judges through these uh, divisive lenses. The, the, the actual, you know, citizens also become, you know, a force to, to consider.
0: Well, just briefly before we move on, because we're you know very fortunate to have someone with with your experience on this show. From personal experience, what, what you know, what what sort of pressure might be applied on on judges in these situations um, in order to, to to rule in politicians' favors?
1: Yeah, uh, various pressures. Alan, there's still corruption in the judiciary, so some judges could be you know corrupted to rule in favor of politicians, uh, corporate entities, and Etc. That's that's one the the pressures the ones that are insidious are, are not spoken about pressures that that come from ethnic communities that come from families friends you know civil society religious organizations judges face you know all all manner of uh, pressures so it's, it's a very lonely uh, place where a judge has to find out whether his spouse or her spouse is talking to politicians and promising them stuff. I, my experience confirms that that has happened. Where colleagues who are incorruptible just discover, you know, that there were gatekeepers who are basically saying that uh, who are getting money from people and there were promised that uh, decisions will be handed down in their favour. My own experience, I can tell you as a Chief justice I didn't face any pressure from the president or from Parliament or from corporate entities or from international community. I faced a lot of pressure from my own community because there's still people who believe that if you achieve justice your chief justice not for Kenyans but for a particular community or for a particular you know uh, class. So there are the, all these pressures, um, and there, there are ways of dealing you know, with them, uh, but there are ways, there, there are certain instances where the dialogue breaks down. But the history here is important. You know, the judiciary you know, during the colonial time, times was a, a department within the attorney general's chambers. So it was, it was very executively minded in its approach and in, in its own decision he couldn't stand up to the executive at all, at all. And this happened also during the post-colonial period. And when you look at the constitution, it addresses that issue. The 2010 constitution said judges should be vetted. Those who are working before the promulgation, and there was a vetting board and quite a number of them were sent home. And those who are coming in, like me and others, we were subjected to Interviews to were aired live by right, TV stations, the public was uh, allowed to participate. The elite in Kenya basically doesn't want to hear what the constitution says. Basically, want to do what they want to do, mm. and uh, the president, I think, faces a, an issue of impeachment. Uh, but. Uh, it, it didn't get anywhere because there was no way Parliament was going to to impeach him. But in in, in my in my view, uh, as a lawyer, he has subverted the, the constitution in so many cases that he should be impeached. Uh, there are these cases where the, the courts have ruled and he is refused to obey, and the disobedience of court orders under the constitution is is tantamount to overthrowing the constitution, you know, subverting the rule of law. It's a very, very, very serious issue. And even the new president, uh, new chief justice, uh, uh, chief justice Mother Kome, he, he, when she was sworn in, this is exactly what she told the president. It's the independence of the judiciary is important. And she also said court orders must be abo- must be obeyed. You know, very courageous pronouncements, in my view, and, and that's, that's, I think, is a good sign, because when judges are under attack, uh, basically, it's the chief justice who has to be the general of the troops. Just one more question on that before we move on. You know, th- there
0: are critics, um, you know, especially in the government, who say the judiciary is too activist. I'm just wondering, you know, given that its independence, as you said, is at a crossroads, are you worried about the relationship between the courts and the government? I'm wondering if you think, you know, hostility between those two branches is sustainable.
1: Uh, it's, it's not. And that's why I, I, I talked about dialogue on the, the Judiciary Training Institute, uh, where those discussions could take place. There's another... Uh, institution called the national council for the administration of justice that is chaired by the chief justice it brings the three three arms or oh, except the parliament it, it brings the executive and the judiciary together particularly in matters of the administration of justice where the entire chain for the administration of justice has to be seamless From the police who investigate cases to the office of the DPP, Director of Public Prosecutions, who takes up those matters. The Attorney General also sits in this council, private sector, also civil society. So I agree that these institutions are the ones that should be used when there are these tensions and these hostilities. Because you see the institutions have to realize that national interest is important. And that's why they were created, so that if there are hostilities, then these institutions can, can act as, uh, you know, mediators. So dialogue is important, and it's a dialogue that is principled, where the executive accepts to, to basically obey and respect the independence of the, uh, of the judiciary. But the, the word activist, I've it used in Kenya for a while. My response to it is that the constitution is activist. The constitution itself is activist. And that's why the, 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 the executive and parliament find it too progressive for, the, for their liking. And so what they are saying is judges are not interpreting the constitution. They are being uh, mobilized by politics. But the constitution has politics. And we, we discussed this ourselves when this happened uh, in the Judiciary Training Institute. There was a time I discussed this issue uh, with the Speaker of the National Assembly. And what, because he said publicly that I was uh, an activist, CJ. And I, I, my response was that he was also uh, an activist speaker. It depends, it, I told him it, it depended on uh, uh, the causes for which we are activists. Mine was to uphold the dignity of the Constitution. His was to subvert it, because he was always very active. Parliament was very active in passing legislation that was you know, un, 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 unconstitutional.
0: So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot this conversation a bit back to politics, that um, those reflections on the judiciary system are, are fascinating, and thank you for that. I'm just wondering, you know, looking ahead, do you think the BBI constitutional referendum is now dead, or could the president still win an appeal and organize a vote in time for the upcoming, you know, ahead of the next elections?
1: This matter will go, you know, uh, it's already in the court of appeal, uh, and I guess it will be decided by the... Uh... The Supreme Court, out, ultimately, if those decide in favor of the BBI, uh, although I don't see on what legal basis, but uh, we, we, you know, we'll we have to to wait and see. So, so yeah, it could go either way. The context, the political context, might change because we still have the pandemic, and uh, even the issue of uh, referendum is is also, you know, uh, problematic. In my books, uh, BBI was never life. The, the two are determined to have that, uh, you know, referendum.
0: There, there's some people who, who say that even if they were to win an appeal, the timeline for organizing a referendum ahead of elections just isn't there. It, w- w- what do you think?
1: Well, you know, the the appeal can, it can be fast-tracked, and I'm sure that is what is going to happen. Because in the Court of Appeal, uh, they can hear the the appeal in June. The Supreme Court can hear the appeal in July. So they can be fast-tracked, but you are quite right. There are issues of, of IEBC which is not properly constituted, so there might be issues there. But what I see myself is that even if they win in those courts, there's going to be serious, serious resistance that that is already building, you know, against the referendum and against what... Uh, people are afraid will be a very dangerous 2022 elections. You can see quite clearly that we are headed to a very, very, very serious political instability. Unless the the, the barons themselves can sort out this issue, I don't see any peace coming out of the, the, you know, the elites have created in their intra-elite struggles in the country.
0: So... Along those lines, I'd say the common view of BBI is that it was an effort by President Kenyatta in some ways to manage his succession. And if that looks like it's now falling apart uh, in many ways to uh, who is now his rival, a deputy president, William Ruto, in many ways, uh, and if, if, if Ruto is strengthened by this because he has been more or less opposed to BBI, although he didn't directly campaign against it, all of this looks like it's raising the stakes of this election quite a bit. And of course, we've seen in the past what can happen in Kenya when these, when these elections get so tense. And so you mentioned you're worried. I'm just wondering, just how worried are you? And, and do you think there's any danger in a sort of complacency and just assuming that everything will be all right?
1: First, the, the, you know, the deputy president is just being opportunistic. He never supported the constitution, uh, 2010 constitution. He was, along with the churches, vehemently against it. But then as we say, politicians, we, we, we basically say in Kenya that politicians are pathological liars who will tell the truth by accident. He is a brilliant um, organizer and mobilizer, have never underestimated uh, our politician at all, or our religious leaders. You know, they have a following and they know how to keep their, their following. And uh, that's my fear. Uh, because that following can be mobilized. The fact that there is no, there there doesn't seem to be uh, an alternative uh, political leadership that can be voicing the the kind of concerns that we're raising, Uh, that makes it even more likely, you know, that uh, uh, there wouldn't be a voice you know the international voice might be there right but there won't be a national voice that says wait a minute you know we we fed up with uh, instability and violence and we also fed up with this uh, elite narrative of politics of divisions for the last 58 years it's it's it's, it's now time you know to to, to basically build uh, an alternative uh, political leadership that can also contest for power. And if, if that happens, then you obviously have uh, an embryonic opposition that that can uh, uh, act as a check and balance on uh, whoever comes to power in 2022. Uh, but the reason that is these are voices from the civil society, uh, but no, nobody pays attention to that. Because people pay attention to people who are going to contest political power.
0: So in in many ways, Kenya has a more entrenched democracy than its neighbors, even though, of course, there has been some violence around elections in the past. But in the past, also Kenyan former presidents, when they leave power, they're basically left alone by their successors. Right now, there's such a poisoned relationship between President Kenyatta and Deputy President Ruto. I'm just wondering, what are the prospects of a smooth transition if Ruto wins and the Kenyatta's feel they're handing over power to someone who at this point looks to be a pretty bitter enemy?
1: Although it's not spoken, but there has been a convention in our politics around issue of uh, presidential succession. Uh, And it starts... In 1978, that's when it started, when Kenyatta died, and Moy came in and protected the interests of the Kenyatta family. President Kibaki uh, not only protected President Moy in his retirement, he also gave President Moy very lucrative uh, retirement benefits. President Uhuru Kenyatta has done the same in protecting President Kibaki. So everybody's talking about uh, that convention in you know in the presidential succession that has made presidents retire and just go home and uh, they know that they are not going to to face politics of agents uh, and that has happened. I'm of the view that at some point President Uhuru Kenyatta did not wasn't uh, convinced that his uh, prospective uh, uh, successor, would actually protect his family interests, protect his security, and that he was probably undermining or subverting that political convention, which is not constitutional, is not legal, but it's, 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 it's one of those conventions that people have seen as creating uh, a peaceful successions. So my, my own hypothesis is that at some point, at some point, uh, uh, President Kenyatta started looking for suc- a successor who will you know, protect uh, their interests and his, his security as well. I, I don't believe that he wants to stay in power. He might want to have somebody who he trusts will, will protect his interests in, in, in politics. That's possible but i think that convention is never written about and i and, and i think it's it's very very important to focus on it
0: on the other side as you mentioned ruto opposed kenya's uh, constitutional reforms the new constitution in, in 2010 uh he's 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 not exactly well known for having reformist credentials um so i'm 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 wondering how concerned are you about a potential ruto presidency In terms of you know the the progress Kenya has made on those constitutional efforts, but but still, like you said, a lot of this still being at a crossroads.
1: You you know, there is a bit of Kenyan history that one has to track. You know, to um, to answer that question, Uh, right from independence and even you know during the colonial period, there is always resistance to uh, dictatorships. And autocracies. I I believe that uh, a Ruto presidency will face the, the kind of resistance that the Uhuru Ruto presidency was facing uh, on issues of national interests, issues of sovereign debt, you know, an all manner of issues. That's 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 for sure. Uh, when when you look at the uh, the consequences of pandemic, it's, it's it's very very clear that whoever uh, becomes present as to deal with public goods, you know, education, uh, water, etc. Uh it's, it's very, very, very clear to me that the issue of land uh, has never gone away. It's, it's still one of those, uh, you know, contentious uh, issues. Uh, and I don't see uh, any uh, peaceful, Transition, other than the transition that is committed to uh, the constitution and can audit the constitution, rescue its weak, uh, weaknesses, because the Kenyan constitution is about fundamentally about two two issues or two factors: equitable distribution of political power. And equitable distribution of national resources is pegged on those two very, very, very critical issues, and they and they would not go away because devolution is 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 there to stay. You know, the issue of land cannot be wished away.
0: Thanks for that, Chief Justice. I actually, I I just have you know one final question, which is which has a bit of a longer lens back backwards and forwards. Uh, you know, Kenya has such a, a vibrant civil society i think it really stands out and and uh, you were a big part of it and and it achieved a lot you know starting from the 80s but especially the 90s and especially compared to to the rest of the region um and, and yet politics here is, is is still really dominated by what you've called the ethnic barons um so i'm, I'm wondering uh, first of all you know why that is um And I'm also wondering after such a a long career, you know, what what sort of reflections you have for the younger generation in Kenya, um, but but also for those across the region where democracies are often even weaker. Is it just that these processes and reforms take a long time, that they're not linear? Or are there any strategic and tactical lessons that you'd like to pass on?
1: Yeah, since the retirement, I've I've spent a lot of time talking to uh, young people. Uh, You are right that you know, these changes take time. It took us 68 years to get our independence. It's it's taken 68 and now 58 years working on on a social contract that we call the 2010 Constitution that we all thought that uh, will be the basis of changing the country so that we can even debate what Kenya should look like. But as I've said, I don't underestimate the Kenyan elite, they have been able to perfect the politics of division, and particularly the five communities uh, that are called the big five, uh, not the animals at all. And they control over 70% of the vote. And so the alliances are about those communities, and now they will share political power. That is what has to be uh, broken, and struggle has been about that, about uh, Kenya as a nation, you know, nation building, state building, having politics of issues. And uh, we have indeed parties, political parties that campaign on that basis, because what you have are people who want to be in parliament, people want to be in the county assembly. So they they know that if they want to win, they they have to be in parties that are led and organized by, you know, the barons who also happen to have a lot of money, that has been a serious, serious problem, you know, since 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 independence. That we haven't had a political party that uh, can claim to be campaigning or mobilizing, organizing on 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 the basis of alternative uh, leadership, you know, in in. Uh, in a fundamental sense. And we have had people who say that only to have alliances with, you know, the ruling parties. And I think when you look at the history of uh, Raila Odinga and the alliances, you will be surprised because this is somebody who starts as being very progressive and anti-government and uh, a patriot. But he keeps on joining these dictatorships and the reign reinforcing them. So this is something that the the the, the youth will have to deal with because my, the, the, the sense I get is that they, they know that politics of division will not uh, give them a good education, they won't give them jobs, uh, the corruption that is going on will make it very 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 difficult uh, for the rights under the Constitution to be fulfilled, if it's the right to food, housing, um, mm. sanitation, etc., et and the right to work. So I get encouraged by you know the social movements that I see, the artist movement, the, the gay movement, and uh, the social justice movements, human rights. There are quite a number. Uh, uh, and that is the activism of or the vibrancy of the civil society that you are talking about. Uh, but in the past, we've just failed because uh, people start arguing that civil society has to be non-partisan. Uh, you know, they, they don't want to run for a political office. There's no way we're going to change this country in terms of resources and political power if people uh, from you know, civil society and from the corporate sector who realize that the status quo has to go and come in and contest for political power. And I am I, seeing a possibility that in, in 2020, you know, you will have that. Uh, obviously, they won't win, uh, but they will definitely capture the imaginations of Kenyans that, uh, uh, you know, another Kenya is possible.
0: That was a really fascinating discussion. Like I said, we're super honored um, that you come on and, and, and share these reflections with us. Uh, so, so, thank you very much.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of International Crisis Group. If you want to read our reports or find more of our work, visit our website crisisgroup.org or follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. This episode was produced by Ida Holinambi and Mae Francis.